0: Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Cohn. I'm Caitlin Hello, I'm Jonathan Magnus. Hi, Screen Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Sloane from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashiri, and you're listening and Not the Foodish.
1: And welcome back to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. I'm Ashley Morrison.
0: And I'm John Lee.
1: And since we last spoke, John, well, well, there's been plenty happening in the world of sport. We'll start on a positive note. And uh, the wonderful Wildcats, congratulations to them on another superb win and everybody associated with the club they really are probably the pinnacle club in Western Australia
0: Absolutely, and when you realise that they've set a world record it's not just an Australian record it's the best domestic sport Uh, results, I suppose you'd call it. To continually Uh, make the finals. finals, A lot of fantastic
1: effort. It is. The only thing you've got to put in perspective is there are less teams in the competition here, but still, to have that consistency year in, year out is phenomenal.
0: And I think when you look back over the history of the NBL and you see the ups and downs of the competition, I mean, it didn't run for at one stage a couple of years ago, um, their effort is even more phenomenal. I mean, it's almost that WA is the backbone of the... The Basketball world in this country. It's they're the ones that, because they can rely on the Perth Wildcats, they just lock them in and they can worry about everything else.
1: I think the amazing thing as well is when you look at when they moved to Perth Arena, they always said they would fill it. There were a lot of people going, you're never going to fill that stadium. Basketball has never reached the levels that it did in the 80s and 90s here in Western Australia. But they did fill it. And that's amazing. And a friend of mine who went, they took their son, who I think is about six and forget the basketball. He just couldn't top, stop talking about the mascot and what the mascot did because they had him on a wire apparently coming down from the roof. And it's things like that. They may be small things, but that child will remember that. He'll associate it with basketball. He'll want to go back to basketball. Uh, and I think I take my hat off to them. I think they just do the whole package so well.
0: Oh, they. Very good organisation, well run, and have been by essentially the same team for a long time. It's the same people that have been doing the, all the good work there.
1: And a big lesson: not a huge staff either.
0: No, but dedicated, really dedicated. I think basketball, as well as being helped by the whole pay TV online boom, unlike football, most basketball fans who follow the big league, the NBL, and keep an eye on the other leagues around, you know, in Europe, etc., they also follow the local team. You don't seem to get that carryover in 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 the world of football. A lot of people who follow the game and love the EPL or Sierra R or whatever they follow, won't have a bar of the local league or the national
1: league. Uh, it's very true, and it's, it'd be interesting to know how they've managed to do that.
0: Uh, you only have to look at the viewing figures on 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 television and that in the pay TV, and that shows you that people, the the real die diehard fans are not that interested, which is a real pity they should be.
1: And I would like to add one thing that I think has maybe passed a lot of people by is the fact that the Perth Wildcats franchise took over the running of the Perth Lynx from Basketball Western Australia this year. And if you look, having been in the doldrums for so long... They made the finals this year. Okay, they got beaten by the Tansville Fire. But for the Perth Lynx to get back up, and let's not forget when Michelle Timms was there, Casey Bevelacqua, um, They were not Casey Bevilacqua, was it? Yes, it was, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, I'm right. I was thinking about the tennis player suddenly for a second. Um, but uh, they were, you know, the top team in the country then, and it's been a long, long time since they've got back to that. And again, it is, I think, credit to the management down there that they've managed to turn that team around in essentially 12 to 18 months and make them one of the top teams in the country.
0: And there's a common dominator there. The man with the golden touch in West Australian sport, Jack Bendat.
1: Yeah, but also let's give Nick Marvin, his CEO, a major... You know, credit as well because he's been loyal to Jack Bendout and they've both been loyal to each other yeah. and they've got the results as a team.
0: Yeah, Nick Marvin's an interesting character and uh, he's done a fantastic job.
1: Nah, he's done an outstanding job.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel Ricardo, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show.
1: On probably a lesser positive note, we had, uh, since we were last together, the Maria Sharapova announcement. I think the thing that scared me about that was, and I don't know if you saw this, John, that within 24 hours of her announcement, um, first of all, the Wikipedia page uh, not surprisingly went through the roof. Um, in that I'm just trying to find the, the stats there, but it in 48 hours it jumped to 50, 1.57 million views for Meldonium. Uh, before that it had only been at 870 views.
0: All by clinical support scientists.
1: <laughs> but, the, but the scariest thing more so than that was the fact that every internet supplier... Yeah. Of meldonium, it's sold out within 48 hours. That is terrifying.
0: Well, it shows you that people aren't put off by the... I mean, there's a lot of people competing at lower levels of sport that don't get drug tested. I mean, it's very costly to drug test people. And you know you're not never going to be playing at Maria's level, but you can have a, a a great time playing at a lower level. Why not take it for all sports?
1: And that that is the thing that... I, drove home to me reading that was the fact that it is the lower level and as we heard uh, I think the World Tennis Association was saying with their people trying to bribe the top players it's actually the level just before they make it so those who may be not going to make it and I'm sure that that's the same here but it really scares me how many people uh, are possibly going to be doing it in the semi-pro ranks because they think oh this might get me spotted it might make me win i mean in western australia in the football here you know you win a car if you're the fairest and best that's no mean prize no and you know if if you think if i take that and i have a great season i win a car you know but people will do crazy things Yeah,
0: i mean i must say they're just so we don't impinge upon anybody they do have a fairly rigorous testing regime those players have been caught it's, uh the uh, state
1: level here they don't
0: yeah yeah i W-A-F-L, absolutely.
1: Ah, But not state soccer there, oh, so, no, which state is what soccer. I was Okay, yeah, about. sorry, I thought you were
0: my no. mistake. But
1: yeah, the waffle, absolutely they do. But uh, as far as I'm aware, the semi-professional league, the NPL here, I don't think there's any So NPL players,
0: players don't get drug tested?
1: Not that I'm aware of. If, uh, if that has changed, certainly when I was playing, it never happened. Um, what about
0: the FFA Cup? You think they, they
1: possibly should be for that. They, well, you've
0: you, you got one set of players who are being tested. All the A League players would be tested. And if.
1: I, I will have to test, uh, check up on that one for yeah, you. I, because, yeah, that's a very, very good point.
0: Yeah. And um, the other thing about. I'm a bit surprised about the Sharapova thing is how vitriolic people went after her. I mean, this is a drug that was only banned at the beginning of the year.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that and, and she's
0: is, she's been legally allowed to take. It may very well be performance enhancing. They might finally, after years, have decided yes, it is performance enhancing. But she did nothing wrong.
1: No, I, I agree. She did nothing wrong. I mean, the the thing is, when you read an about or a lot of it though, where they're saying it is uh, to strengthen your heart, the oxygen going to your heart which would enhance your stamina...
0: I have no doubt she took it for performance-enhancing reasons. But it was... Absolutely no doubt. And she was not the only one. They had 99 positive tests. Um, And that's going to always be one of the problems with this drug regime, is while you've got some things that are legal and then you suddenly cut them off, you're always going to catch the stragglers. And Maria Sharapova will not be the only one that didn't read an email...
1: What did you make, though, of her racket sponsor head uh, weighing into the argument there? Whereas a lot of the other sponsors pulled back. They said, we will put our sponsorship on hold until we have that she has her hearing. Uh, But they were actually going after saying she should be exonerated. She's said that she's taken it. She's been taking it for years. La, 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 la. I thought, again, it's a very bold move. And it was interesting that um, Murray Came out, who is also sponsored by them, and said he didn't think that was the right approach by his sponsor.
0: Well, they've got a lot of people they want to protect too. They've got a lot of money invested in her and other players, and and Andy Murray. I think that there's been um, a lot of finger pointing and rah-rahing from that on the from the world anti-doping side of things, and I think. You only have to look at what's happened in the the whole Essendon case to know that there's problems within the World Anti-Doping Authority and, and our local ASADA authority as well, and that they're just standing up saying, right, it's one thing to accuse someone, come on, show us. What, what you know, this is, she was fine. She's been fine up until January, and now suddenly she's a criminal. And that's essentially what they, they're calling her, is a criminal.
1: But I do think that we're seeing sponsors' influences on sporting things too big, and I think there, there there needs to be a definite line. You're a sponsor. You do not have a lot of say in the way the sport is run or whatever.
0: Well, it's interesting that the uh, WTA didn't come out and say, mate, it doesn't matter what you say. WADA never came out and said, doesn't matter what you say. Yep. No None of the authority, people in positions of authority, came out and told them to nick off or... Explained to them exactly what was going on and said, Look, you've made this statement. Here's the real story. Now, maybe it went on behind the scenes. I don't know. But they never did it publicly. No. They let heads say their piece and then they went, Oh, we'll just keep quiet and it'll all go away. And that seems to be the way they operate.
1: Yep. Yeah, but I mean, I think cycling, would, there was a lot of that in cycling, wasn't it? It was, they absolutely. Were it would all go away. Yeah. And we've seen how much certain it's people. It's the ostrich response. Yep. Yeah.
0: And, and hope it goes away. At least, head of being proactive about it and say, okay, show us your money. We're, what is going on? We don't believe she is. We've got a long association with her. You just come along and collect a urine every two weeks. What's going on?
1: Uh, the, the scary one, as well, for me is that the Russian you know, scandal with their doping thing. I don't don't know if you saw that two of the people that were the head of the Russian anti-doping have both passed away within 11 days of each other. And one of them supposedly was uh, trying to get a book published as to what had actually gone on.
0: Well, this is Russia. And if you're a student of history, you'd probably know that that sort of thing's been going on in Russia for about 700 years. (laughs) It's, It's no surprise that that's the way things are dealt with there. Look at look at the, uh, the the pro-democracy movement and what happens if you stick your head up above the parapets there. And, mm,
1: yeah, well, we'll probably not say, leave that because... But, but
0: while we're on that, I thought it was very interesting. During that period where everybody was Sharapova, Sharapova, another famous athlete opened their gob and talked about sport, and that was the great Carl Lewis. Carl came out and said, long jumpers these days are rubbish, Um Jesse Owens would have won a, a, a medal at the last Olympics. They're all clowns. They so don't know what they're doing. The sport's dead and it's going to die. And I couldn't help but wonder, what why was it that allowed Carl to perform at such a high level over his career that modern-day athletes aren't allowed to source?
1: Yep, Yeah, uh, well, there's the book about the 100 metres at the Seoul Olympics, and I think Mr Lewis was in that. He got the gold after Ben Johnson was disqualified, and that book alleges that, well, every single runner, except for one in the eight that took part in that final, at some point in their career tested positive to uh, illegal substances or banned drugs, and uh, there was only one athlete that was for his whole career as far as everyone knows was clean so what does that say and I mean I'd just like to say on the Jesse Owens thing hang on a sec we're going back a long long time 1936 I don't think there were maybe performance enhancing certainly wasn't the training facility they've got today and I think if Jesse had been given those opportunities the diet and if you read it how he was persecuted at university couldn't even travel on the same bus as a lot of his athletes at times I think he would still win a medal today
0: could do. I wonder what he thinks of uh, the, the 1500... Well, not the 1500. What did Herb win? I mean, Herb Elliott's time in the... Yeah, was it yeah. was. Uh, would have won medals at most of the modern Olympics since then. So that's a really lame argument, Carl. Well, I, I think... Especially at was... a time with drugs in sport and stuff. Just keep your head down, son.
1: Well, I went off Carl Lewis when I remember reading, I think it was back in the 80s, that he was actually autographing Bibles. Now, I'm not a religious person, <laughs> but... That just did not sit well with me, and uh, I just thought, you know what I think there 's only one guy should be signing a Bible yeah. if he was alive <laughs> because it is pretty much his autobiography <laughs> yeah that's
0: uh, that 's a huge ego isn 't it signing a Bible
1: well, uh the next talking of egos, our next <laughs> guest does not have an ego; he is an absolutely wonderful man who I was very happy to catch up with when he was visiting in Perth now. Campbell Forsyth does have a very strong connection with Australia because his grandson Cameron Burgess is actually or played for the Olly Roos as they tried to qualify for Rio. Uh, so he is an up-and-coming Australian footballer currently plying his trade over in the UK. But Campbell Forsyth, his grandfather, well, he wore the shirt of Scotland with a great deal of pride. Campbell Forsyth, welcome to Not the Footy Show.
2: Ashley well nice to see you. I hope we I hope we can get this interview over quickly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no no, I'm really looking forward to it. Now I, w- I wanted to take you back to obviously your first contract which I believe you signed with St Mirren when you were just about 16 years old. Was it always yeah. a
2: dream to play football? No, I signed for St Mirren because uh, I had to I had, I had to do my national service. It was uh, I had to go to the army when I was 18 years of age and for a 2 years uh, stint and came out when I was twenty twenty. So that was the start of the professional career because I'd been playing for the army in Germany and uh, making some making some noises and um, I came back then and I signed after a short period I signed I signed for Sindbern and that would be fifty four fifty five, nineteen fifty four, nineteen fifty five.
1: But you were telling me how uh, you didn't actually train with the team because no. you had a good job.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I, I had, um, I, I, I was, I had a good job with the post office. It's called the post, not uh, the GPO at that time. And um, St. Martin were, were no car, with no car, so St. Martin was uh, to get there in the evening for a seven o'clock start for training was just impossible. So I had to train on my own um and occasionally got to uh, train with Falkirk or Stenhouse Muir but I still had to train on my own I wasn't involved in their setup so I had to do my own thing through right throughout the week and uh, met the team on a Saturday only only time I saw them was from one Saturday to the next Saturday and um it was it wasn't easy it wasn't easy
1: I was going to say, how does a goalkeeper train on his own? Because you can't have had shots or anything.
2: No shots. You didn't even have a wall to kick the ball off. You didn't even have a ball because <laughs> they were being used elsewhere. I just had to do the best I could. Um, sometimes you got a few kids uh, that were um, watching the training and uh, if you were lucky enough to get the ball, you gave them a shot and they, they maybe had a few shots at you, that sort of thing. But that, that was it. Oh, it, was, um, it was not the best... Uh, It wasn't the best preparation for playing in the the, the top division at that time.
1: No, I'm sure it wasn't. You also were telling me that when you were picked for the under-23s, there was no training really and also you had to do a full day's work before you represented Scotland.
2: (laughs) I did a full day's work uh, on, uh, it was February 1957 and I was working and because of my my job I couldn't leave or I couldn't get away early. I had to finish at five o'clock Jump on a train through to Glasgow, go to the nearest bus station to get a, a a bus through to Ibrox Park where Rangers played, and I got there in time for the trainer to say, "Come on, son, you'll you'll have to hurry up." Uh, put my strip on, and I didn't know who was who was in the English under 23 team, but I soon found out because uh, they, they they showed up very very prominently. Uh, and I found out it was Brian Clough, the, the famous Brian Clough, who was playing centre forward. Their inside left at that time, their number 10 was another famous player called Johnny Haynes. Their number 11 was a a, a, a young lad, good player, who played in Manchester United. Uh, he was killed in the air crash, the Munich air crash, and that was David Pegg. After that, I didn't want to know who was playing. I was, I was, <laughs> I was on tenter hook. so. But uh, they didn't win. They didn't win. We had a, we had a draw. Um, So I was quite pleased, but um, that was it. There was no preparation, no training, no staying away, work during the day, no tea, played in the evening. That was it.
1: Now, injuries were a big Mm. part of your career, really, and I believe at St Mirren you missed out on the Scottish Cup final because of injury?
2: I did. I, uh, I played, and I was... Maybe a wee bit naive. the injury wasn't that that bad. I probably could have played at a push, but I didn't want to let the team down, and uh, so uh, I uh, I had to make way for the second team goalkeeper to come in, and he played well. And the rest is history. He got the he got the the FA Cup badge, and I didn't. But. Um, that was because of that was because of a strain, a thigh strain that uh, caused that. So, I couldn't complain. It was um, it was my decision to uh, I wasn't fit enough to play.
1: Do you look back on it and wish you'd played now?
2: No. Um, oh, I wish I'd played. I mean, <laughs> a, but uh, you know, it's uh, that's one of these things, and these things happen. It was just a stroke of bad luck.
1: You moved to Kilmarnock and uh, I believe, you know, there was a, a fair amount of success there with the club again, but injury prevented you from playing the last two games in one of their biggest seasons.
2: Absolutely. Um, we played, uh, we, um, this would be in 19, oh, I went to Kilmarnock and I think it was 1960, 61. And um, I played away there and within two years I was uh, I was in, I was Playing in the full Scottish side, the full Scottish team, and um, I played, as you as you know, I played against England in 1964 at Hampden, and um, the next game was against Germany, and I had to pull out because uh, because of an injury, I had to pull out of there. Um, but during that season, I played 27 games. In um, the 27th game, I got. I was injured again, and the young lad who uh, was my reserve at that time, he uh, he came he came into the team, played a stormer, and uh, the the manager, in his wisdom, he kept him, and and he played the last, the young lad played the last seven games. So I played twenty seven games in that 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 season, he played seven games, but we won the Scottish League. We won the Scottish League, so I got uh, I I got my uh, league badge, uh, so. You know, it was, it was yeah, it was that's how that's how things happen. You know, you, your uh, injuries can can prevent you from uh, well, twenty seven games out of thirty four wasn't too bad.
1: No, absolutely not. We'll talk about your Scottish career shortly, but also I saw at Kilmarnock you played in their first ever game in a European competition, which. I think it was the Intercity Fairs Cup against Eintracht Frankfurt. Yeah. And uh you lost the first leg but you by all accounts or the reports I read had a stormer in the second where you actually won
2: 5-1. That's exactly right. We went to went to Frankfurt and we uh, came back with a 3-0 deficit. Um but uh, <clears throat> in the second game um we we put it on we we really excelled and uh, we knocked five and we 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 beat them five one so on ag- aggregate it was a, a five four result for us. Uh, unfortunately, we were drawn against Real Madrid in <laughs> the following in the following uh, the following round. But um, you know uh, five one that was the I think that's probably been more or less their highlight, Kilmallock's highlight game uh, of all time when we beat Eintracht Frankfurt five one because they had previously been to the European Cup final. Um, uh, when they were beaten by Real Madrid, actually,
1: in Scotland as well,
2: <laughs> in Scotland as well, I had it. Aye, record crowd. Yeah, yeah, they were a good side. They were a good side, but we were a better side on that evening.
1: We talk of Hampden now because that's where you made your debut against England, and it was a it was a unique game because going into that game, England had won six games on the trot, scored twenty eight goals, I believe, yeah. and uh, it was also the first time that Scotland had beaten England three games in a row.
2: We were, <laughs> I don't know where they, really, but anyway, we we, uh, we were nicknamed the Hat Trick Heroes because we're, we were the only <coughs> team in the twentieth century. Uh, the only time in the 20th century that Scotland had beaten England three times in a row. So it was quite a unique thing. And uh, the crowd, the crowd that day, I think they realised the importance of it because they turned up in their numbers and there was something like, I don't know, probably getting on for, my estimate, it would be 138,000 people at the game. Somewhere in that region, you know, a big, big crowd. And it was, it was, oh, Fantastic. That's that's when you've got to step up to the plate, I can assure you.
1: <laughs> I mean, Gordon Banks, it was his first game at Hampden. He was the other end. And I mean, England had some stars of the future, Bobby Moore as well. But also in that game, I saw that John Gregg made his debut and it was Billy McNeil's first game as captain.
2: Captain, that's exactly right, Billy McNeil. Uh, he was number five. He That was his first game as captain. Greg, he, I think Greg got something like 44 caps or something, but that was his first one. Um, we had a good team. They were a good team. We had oh some of the best players in Scotland ever. I mean, how, you know, Baxter, Law, I mean, they're really icons in Scotland. They were, you know, just superb. Superb team. And they worked as a team. We worked as a team and um, we we, uh, weren't overawed in any way and uh, we did them 1-0.
1: Is it true that you asked uh, Jim Baxter for an early touch and then as soon as he got it, he just went on the attack? (laughs)
2: That's right. I said to him him and I said to Greg and I said to the whole of the defence, because it was a drizzly, rainy day and uh, I said to them, if you get the ball, let me have it back uh, if you can early, just to get a, a touch, just to get a little feel of the ball. No chance. No chance. They they were as not nervous, but they were as, you know up for the game as quick. So as quick as they get, they got on on the attack. So I was left, and I thought it was maybe safer quarter of an hour 15 minutes or something it was only and it was only about three or four minutes before Roger Hunt broke away and uh, I made uh, I made a, a good save uh, and I hadn't touched the ball um, so that kind of that settled me if you like and uh, the rest's history.
1: You had a pretty good international record four games for Scotland you only lost one and that was against Wales in 3-2 in the home nations do you wish the home Nations still happened because it was a great tournament when I was growing up
2: yeah I still think that the, 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 there's room for uh, uh, games like that I, if I can just tell you that at that time also, apart from the full Scottish international setup, there was also games played where the Scottish League played against the English League or the Irish League or the Welsh League, and these were good games, so in effect. I could have turned out for the Scottish League and played against the English League, and Dennis Law may have been opposing me. You know, there were there were situations like that, but they, they were. And we played England twice, actually. I played against England twice, and it was, a, you know, it was an international. Played against England twice, the, Scot- the Scottish League versus the English League. They didn't win again, neither <laughs> side, but uh, uh, these were big games as well. And they, they, they disappeared. I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, but, you know, there is room for there, there are There are rooms for games like that, I think.
1: Your career sadly came to a bit of a premature end. It was interesting to read that after that game against Real Madrid for Kilmarnock, there was actually, I believe, in your contract that or the negotiations for you to move south to England, it was when you got knocked out of European competition, yes, sure. you could then move to Southampton. But a broken leg saw you in the end decide to call curtains on your career a little bit yes. early.
2: Yes, actually, um, when we came back from Real Madrid, I was supposed to meet up with the uh, directors of Southampton Football Club in London, and uh, the the situation was that the the airplane or the the plane that we came back from Spain with uh, was late. One thing and another, Um, I didn't get that get to that meeting, so it was a week or two weeks. Later, that I I had to go down to Southampton and decided that um, maybe it's time for me to try the English the English setup, and uh, that's how I, I finished up Southampton. And it was a journey worthwhile, you know, as far as I was concerned.
1: Broken leg though, and and that really you never really recovered from that.
2: No, I um, I was p- not prone to injuries. Is probably the wrong terminology, but. Uh, I had a few I had a few ankle injuries um and then played against Liverpool and um it was a complete accident there was no one to blame uh but it was my own fullback who hit me from the side he missed Ian Callaghan, the Liverpool outside right he missed him and he came right through and hit me when I was off balance and uh smashed the leg in two places so it was never it was never the same it was never the same after that. Um, it was a bit weak and um, I couldn't and the best of it the best thing was that I uh, let me put it in another way I was back in the Scottish setup I was back in the, 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 the eyes of the selectors if you like to, to make my return. Uh, and this happened, so, you know, I was unlucky in that situation, but I was never, ever, I made my comeback uh, on a Far East tour, but I was never, ever, never, ever, I never had the same confidence in the leg again. And rather than, uh, you know, it may have been a different story nowadays, but at that time I felt that uh, if I couldn't play, if I couldn't play at the uh, at the top, top end of the, of the game... I wouldn't play at all, so I decided that I would uh, retire, and that was it was a wee bit premature because the goalkeepers now play till they're sixty or something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, no, I could have, you know, but I just it was it was a weakness, and uh, I felt that I couldn't um, probably couldn't uh, reach the same standard as I'd been at, so I decided to, and I I, I came to an arrangement with Southampton on very good terms. Uh, And I finished up doing a bit of work for them in Scotland and one thing and another. So that was it for me. Probably nearly 15 years as a pro, but um, yeah, good career.
1: Obviously now you must be looking forward to watching your grandsons playing, you know, Cameron Burgess uh, over in the UK. I I asked him when I interviewed him when he first went over there, would he choose Scotland or would he choose Australia? Well, he's actually done both now, hasn't he?
2: Yes, he he, he actually uh, he, he had the choice. He, I watched him playing several games for the Scotland under twenties or something, you know, something like that, and um, he he stood out to me. I mean, I obviously I'm a bit biased, but he stood out in that at, at that level. He stood out to me and very calm and assured and good left a uh, good left. He calls it his wand, his left foot, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, he was doing well and then the, the Australian set up, they made approaches to him and he had a choice to make and I think that uh, they looked at the path uh, that Scotland were taking and they looked at the path that Australia were taking and uh, I think at the end of the day, Rio might have been in his thoughts, you know, or something like that anyway, but uh, he plumped for, for Australia.
1: Fantastic. Looking back on your career, and you, it, the game is very, very different now. Is there is there one thing you wish you know you that was still part of the game?
2: I think the international teams suffer a little bit just now because there is such an influx of foreign players, and I think it's to the detriment of um, homegrown players. I don't see young players getting as many chances as they possibly might get. Um, I think that um, in my day, if someone was injured, they brought, they brought the young people in. But now, there's so much at stake in football that um, they prefer to buy a seasoned campaigner, if you like, rather than promote uh, a youngster who hasn't um, hasn't qualified, if you like, or hasn't reached a certain stage. I, I would I would like to see um, I would like to see more. Uh, youngsters been brought brought through if if that if that if that answers your question
1: Campbell great catching up with you thanks very much for your time
2: you're very welcome Ash thank you very much for coming and seeing me look forward to seeing you again hi I'm Mark Leduca and you're listening
0: to Not The Footy Show
1: Well, that was Campbell Forsyth, who obviously has one eye now on the Australian scene with his grandson Cameron Burgess playing for the Olly Roos. Fascinating stuff how, you know, he did a full day's work, John, before playing for the Scotland under-21s. Had to catch a bus to the ground, run from the bus (laughs) station to the ground. No training, no warm-ups. It just shows you what a different era it is now. You imagine asking an under-21 player today to do a full day's work, catch a bus and run to the stadium and there would be no training before they actually played against the opposition.
0: Well, you hear a hurdle at stage one there. Ask him to do a full day's work. Make it falls over there.
1: <laughs> but... <laughs> but uh... Uh... Yeah, a lo- lovely guy. And, and I mean, every, anyone that listens to the show would know I have a, a sort of soft spot for goalkeepers. And so it was really special for me to actually catch up with him. I've been chasing him for a long, long time to have a conversation. But uh, talking of football, we should yeah. give a massive congratulations to Alan Stajic and the Matildas qualifying for Rio. Absolutely brilliant achievement. They played superbly in that tournament. And uh, every single one of them should take a very big bow.
0: It's uh, a, a pretty quick turnaround w- with his appointment. I mean, when he was appointed, there was issues going on with the girls and the former coach, and, and some of those issues played out during his tenure as well as far as money goes, etc., cetera, and payments and those sorts of things. But he's done a wonderful job on the pitch. And the games they played against the best teams, they were really good. I mean, you can't take anything away from a 9-0 drubbing or any other, you know. Yeah. It's what it is. But when they came up against really serious competition, you could see that they lifted. You could see them playing at a a different level.
1: Well, I don't know if you saw one of the articles in Japan. It was analysing the fact that the Matildas beat Japan. And Japan, you know, have been, in women's football, the dominant power for the last 15, you know, probably almost 20 years, Uh, not quite, 99 was probably the last China was strong in 99. But they've been certainly very, very dominant there. And they were just shell-shocked. For a start, it was the first time the Matildas had ever beaten them in Japan. And then suddenly they knew they had to win every other game to qualify. And, of course, Japan did not do that. And they didn't end up qualifying. And uh, Sawa, they've captain when they... Uh, Won the World Cup has come out and been absolutely hammered the players saying that they didn't play with heart and passion. But I think they were just beaten by a better team who they didn't expect to. Credit as well to Lydia Williams, who in goal and in my opinion is now one of the best female goalkeepers in the world. She's always had that ability. Uh, I remember Tom Somani saying she makes saves that you just don't see other women making. And she is outstanding.
0: Uh, They played with a fantastic team spirit too. Those away games, especially, yep. you can see the spirit within the the group.
1: The one the one thing I find as well really interesting, and to me, this was a, one of the master strokes of Alan Stadick as a coach, was making Lisa Devana co captain. Yep. Now, Lisa Devana, anyone that knows her is she is dedicated, she is passionate, she is driven, and I think even if you spoke to the players, they would probably tell you she is more driven than any of them, and she struggles when the others don't necessarily have the drive she has. She can't understand that. And she gets frustrated because they don't show the same commitment. Or, But everybody's different. But since she's been made captain, and I, I had a conversation with her. She said, I don't want to stuff this up. She said, I'm so proud to be given this opportunity. I will not do anything to mess this up and I think just having her as that leadership and having her because she is so proud to be Australian I think it was a masterstroke and I think he's actually getting the best out of her not just as a footballer but also as a person
0: well there was a period there where you're starting to hear stories you know coming out that people weren't happy with her or you'd hear commentators dissing her and they've all disappeared that's all gone.
1: Look, that she. There's no doubt, and I th- she would be the first to admit it. She's a difficult personality to manage, and I remember Tom Somani got criticised when he took her to the World Cup in 2011, and he goes. Who wouldn't take their best player? Exactly. Uh, I mean, I was there in Germany when she, after a training session in Bochum, it had gone horribly wrong. You know, the players just weren't focused. It wasn't happening. So Tom Somani goes, look, it's not going to improve. Let's forget it. Let's all get on the bus, go back to the hotel. Lisa goes, no, we've got to stay. We've got to get this right. He's going, Lisa, it's not going to happen. The people's heads aren't in the right place. And she argued with him, and she was fuming that they weren't going to stay. And and he goes, just get on the bus. She goes, no, I'm running back to the hotel. Now they'd only been in Bochum a day, and somehow, anyway, she managed to find her way back to the hotel and she got back there before the bus, having run. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, I'm not condoning her behavior, but again, I think you have to sort of have some understanding as to how driven she is, and she is driven. Uh, more than a lot of male athletes as well as a lot of female athletes. Uh, but if you look again, she's got the records there, the first woman to score in th- for Australia in three World Cups. You know, Tim Cahill got the headlines when he did it, and there's been quite a lot of male players who have actually done it. There's been far less female yeah. players to have done it. So she's in a very, very elite club.
0: How long can she go on for?
1: I think you'll find she will probably retire after the Olympics. She may she may go round for one more World Cup, you just don't know.
0: Depends how they use her as well, I suppose. Yeah. You know. Towards the end of her career she'd be great coming on in the sixtieth
1: minute. I oh, look her <laughs> fitness you know. will never be a problem because she is that dedicated. Yeah.
0: just just as an impact, you know, she's gonna to get to the point of a career where she's not gonna be able to play at that intensity for ninety minutes. But she can play above that intensity for twenty five minutes or something.
1: Uh, Just should also mention a congratulations for the Perth glory. The turnaround that they've had has been fantastic. And I think credit goes to Kenny Lowe because he obviously looked at his squad in December, January and went, you know what, with you, you and you, we're never going to get anywhere. So I've got to move you on. And the players that he's brought in, uh, he's done really well. Andy Keogh coming back. Uh, has helped in pushing Diego Castro further forward. Those two are forming a fantastic partnership up front. But again, it's the local boys who've returned. And now I don't like to see local boys returning because I'd rather they were establishing themselves in Europe and making it to the highest level. But the fact that these guys who he would have coached when they were younger, he stayed in touch with them, known they're not happy and has brought them back. And I think that that's a really good thing. Uh, I do worry the the one downside Uh, is the fact that Josh Risden signed a one-year deal. That's good for the glory, but I don't think it's going to be good for his own career because I do wonder whether now you're going to find that any European club will come in and pay for him. I'm not sure he's established enough as a socceroo or that uh, well-regarded in the A-League to be able to demand a transfer fee. I think he's on par with too many other players in Europe that they could sign for next to nothing. And also knowing that European clubs don't like to sign players over the age of 23 because in their eyes, unless they are a f- full-blown international because they feel they've had too many uh, bad habits by then. I think that contract may spell the end of Josh Risden getting the chance to play in Europe, which to me is very, very sad. I think the reasons he probably did it was out of loyalty to the club so that they would get a transfer fee. Hopefully that may transpire, but... I do worry about that, and I do worry that Risden may have um, signed a a potential move to Europe away.
0: I wonder if players are really that concerned about that these days. I wonder if they're perhaps just as happy to go and play in China for a huge check without all the hassles of being in a big European club where they're going to be a small fish at the bottom. Well, then you
1: open a whole new argument, don't you, John? It's like, why are you playing the game? Are you playing because you want money? And security for the rest of your life or are you playing to see how far you can push your talent and what you can achieve in a playing perspective now i don't know josh risden intimately i don't know him really well but i do know him fairly well and having had conversations with him as he was coming up now he to me unless he's changed was always a player who wanted to see how far he could go as a player and i think Unless he's changed, as I say, that to me was always his driving force. Not the money, not the adulation. He wanted to see how far he could go as a footballer. And I think he would be disappointed if he ended up in China rather than Europe.
0: I think what we'll see in the future is more and more managers pushing it as an option for their for their players. And in the sense that you're pretty much in the same time zone. Um, it's not as far away to get home. You, you're not playing the seasons, that you, you're not playing for the... The time you are in Europe, it's less on your body.
1: The, the only reason the, the clubs here, they're already doing it, John. The, yeah. the A-League clubs are pushing their players into China. Yeah. Because, A, they get a higher transfer fee Absolutely. than they will get from a European club. And the clubs need those transfer fees. And, again, the players with all due respect to some of those players who've gone to China, don't have to be as good no. to go to China as they have to be to go to Europe.
0: That's right. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be your Mark Viduca or Harry Kuhl types that end up in China. Because the European clubs, will, when players are that good, they're going to be in Europe. It's those guys who are underneath that, who are going, to, are going to be a struggling player in Europe, or I can be almost a star in China and getting paid a bucket load of money to do it. I think a lot of them are going to take the bucket of money.
1: Yeah, but the the one thing I hope they listen to, though, are the players who've been there. (laughs) And I've spoken to several of them, and they said it was the toughest period of their careers in that, yes, they got a lot of money, but it was very, very lonely. Uh, in that there were language issues, obviously. The conditions that you talked about, like some parts yeah. of China are absolutely freezing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've actually commented one Chinese Super country. League game where the snow alongside the pitch was probably about four foot high where they'd cleared it before they played. Uh, that was actually the game where I still don't know if the cameraman died, fell asleep or whatever, but he just suddenly, the main cameraman, just the camera dropped and all we could see was half the pitch for about <laughs> four minutes. <laughs> Uh, and we had to keep commentating, which was challenging. The other thing
0: about Chinese football is that it's tainted at the moment, still from corruption scandals. And I know that, you know, a couple of blokes have been hauled up in front of the central committee there, and uh, they're, they're no longer either with us or within the society. They've been locked away, but I think. They were scapegoats. They were big names to haul up there. I think there's still some endemic problems. Those things don't go away just because you you imprison a couple of people. They're, they're, those sorts of networks are huge and they have many tentacles and you have to cut all the tentacles off, not just lop the head off.
1: I think the other thing with the Chinese League that I would say is you've got the big clubs who are signing... A lot of young, potentially talented players that they will, like Guangzhou Evergrande, which they will then sell back to either a club in South America or to Europe for a profit. If you look at the clubs below the top three or four, they're not doing that. They're signing players that will get them through the season that might get them competitive and get into the Asian Champions League. So there's two very different mindsets. I would like to see... Or I I believe if the Chinese Super League is to succeed, those other clubs have got to start doing the same and going, we're going to invest in this guy, we'll have him here for two, three years, and then we will sell him on. Um, But again, they need to have the top coaches to be able to do that. So it's a whole network and a whole framework to be able to achieve that. But it's going to be interesting. And the the scary thing is, if that grows, where does it leave the A-League? Is the A-League going to become even lesser a competition? Um, or by that I actually mean will it push the A-League down rather than lift it up?
0: Well, we've mentioned it before, but perhaps not using those words, I think the A-League has to market itself to players and managers as a lifestyle league. I mean, it, that's what sells Australia, and that's what sells Australia overseas to visitors, to people who come, to immigrants. It, it's a lifestyle country. It's about the lifestyle here. And if we use that as the attractor for for players... We will get them
1: see I, I think there was a story when I was in India that came out on Reuters that connected Dave Mitchell, the former coach, in that he was talking to Singapore and Malaysia about having teams in the A league and about a league teams playing games offshore in Malaysia and Singapore, and apparently permission has been given for that. I personally think there is a lot of merit in that. I think you know the Singapore League is poor at the moment, but if their national teams say played in an A-League or what if you want to call it a Southeast Asian League or, or whatever. Uh, we know the league in Malaysia, the, the, the Super League in Malaysia is pretty strong. But again, I think there is maybe a place for their first division, a couple of those teams, to play in a league with Australia. And if you look from a marketing perspective, from a television perspective, in so many ways, I think it is a winner. Because I think the A-League, if it continues the way it is, it's going to struggle. It needs, the, if it didn't have Hyundai, You know, there's not a lot of sponsorship money slashing around there. And also the TV, as we know, the audiences at the moment are the lowest they've been since the A-League's been in existence. So something has to change. Uh, And I do think that we're going to have to start looking more to Asia. Uh, Some of the sports here are already doing that and looking to form links. I mean, hockey has done that. They've signed an agreement with Malaysian hockey. And as we're talking now, the Malaysian team is here in Perth on a camp. And the women's Chinese team are here in Perth on a camp. So... You know, I think there are other sports need to start looking a little bit broader.
0: See, I, I'm shocked at the f- television figures for the for the A-League because I keep hearing all of these football people telling me it's the biggest sport in the world and it's this and it's all that and it's rah, 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 but none of you are watching it. And I, I, I must admit, you know, the crowd figures aren't that bad. They're pretty good. They're certainly comparable to the NRL. Um... It's just staggering that nobody's watching it. And you can't simply put it down to it's on SBS2. I've heard that argument run. oh, When it's on a mainstream commercial, mate, I can get SBS2 as easily as I can get 7.2, and everybody can. If you can get Channel 7, you can get all of those channels. So it's all free-to-air is just free-to-air. There's no more of this commercial television versus SBS or ABC, government-sponsored television. You have access to it, and people still aren't tuning in and watching it.
1: Well, I'd be interested to hear from anybody else and, and feel free to comment on our Facebook page after you hear this podcast because my view is I think that some of the commentary and, and I've had this discussion with television executives is it's not honest. Now, by that, I mean if the game is poor, say it's poor because football people that are watching, and it, whether you're a rugby fan, whether you're a netball fan, you know when a game is poor. You know when there are handling errors, when people are making mistakes, and it's a pretty boring, dull game. Now, I know as a commentator, you have to try and make it sound more exciting, but do you actually lie and say, this is a great game, this is an exciting game, when it's actually not? I think, you know, you have to, you have, there needs to be a little bit more honesty because you can't bluff the viewer, and I feel as a football fan, when I watch football, they're trying to con me and trying to tell me that this is an exciting game when it isn't. But there are exciting games, and sadly, that's the nature of sport. Not every game will be exciting. No. You know? But don't try and tell me that a really bad game is going to be exciting.
0: Generally, they're not. And that, that, I must admit, some of the games that SBS has had to play have been pretty average. They haven't had a lot of quality material that they've been allowed to broadcast.
1: But I think, again, this year, that's the sad thing, is there have been some poor teams in the league this year. And, you know, there's been one or two that have played some exciting stuff. And, you know, if you if you looked at the glory pre-Christmas, they weren't yeah. that great to watch. You look at them now, they're wonderful to watch.
0: And that, you know, the broadcaster can't be held responsible no, for... It, it, that's, those, no one knows. That's the, what
1: I'm saying. That's yeah. it's, it's, it's just the luck of the draw. And mm-hmm. sometimes you might get too... Teams that have been bad all season, but they'll produce an absolute humdinger of a game. You just never know.
0: Now, two of the highlights of the A League season this year so far are the form of Melbourne Victory and Sydney FC. I'm loving their form at the moment, especially after Melbourne Victory were gifted the FFA Cup through the fixturing. I just had about seven spectators turned up to watch the game, where they would have sold
1: out Perth Oval, I have no doubt. I think there's a lot of people very happy that Sydney FC is sliding down well, the table. Well,
0: especially all the stuff, even even now they're still talking about Sydney FC making the finals. Even now, Sydney FC, if they get there, they're get, if they get to the finals, they're going to be out in the first week.
1: I think if they don't make the finals, Graham Arnold's going to be out.
0: Well, we haven't been hearing too much about Supercoach lately from his friends in the Sydney media, have we?
1: Anyway, we should probably leave it there, don't yeah, you Yeah, a bad time.
0: Yeah, I think I've said enough.
1: Well, we hope you've enjoyed this. We'll be back with another podcast very shortly. And uh, as I say, we'd love your feedback on why you think people are not maybe tuning into the football. But uh, So just drop us a comment on our Facebook page. You can like us there. That's Not The Footy Show. And you can also find us at notthefootyshow.com. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. It gets back. See ya. We'll be back next week.